All right. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, and good morning, everyone. Good to see you guys here this morning. I hope you guys are all doing well. Uh, I'm one of those youth leaders who's going to be going to camp tomorrow, and uh, I just got back from a youth camp uh, last week, so it's like uh, out of youth camp. This is like being in, in, out of the fire, into the fire, uh, is what we say. But you know, it's the fire of the Holy Spirit, because uh, I was just stirred up greatly. Uh, I was at a youth camp in California. They do it a little different over there. Like we were in San Diego, so it's like I'm like waiting in the lunch line. We're at this beautiful university. There's like palm trees and like the ocean. And I'm like, this is the weirdest youth camp lunch line I've ever been in in my life. Uh, uh, but it was great. It was, it was awesome. Uh, had a great time. But what was really impressive, more impressive than the weather, more impressive than the location, was seeing the work of God happening in California. Uh, it, was, it was one church, or it was two churches uh, sending, and they had about 155 uh, youth kids there between two churches. And it was just they're high schoolers, just their high schoolers. Like these kids are coming to faith in Jesus. Uh, they're being discipled. Like I had a chance to go. I was invited to come speak to them uh, really about finding a life uh, with God in his word uh, and, and sharing your faith through evangelism. And I met so many awesome kids uh, and uh, so many awesome leaders. Like most of their leaders for the camp were like kids in their 20s. Like, so, you know, uh, if, you're, if you're somebody who's like, you look around our culture and you're like, oh man, it just feels like things you're going the wrong direction. I just want to encourage you, like, God has called every generation, and he won't forget this one. And, uh, and just to be encouraged greatly, like, so you're sending your kids uh, this week to youth camp. I'm so pumped. Uh, I go to youth camp. Uh, it might seem a little weird. What lead pastor goes to youth camp? Here's the thing. God convicted me a few years ago, and, and I just felt like, you know what? Like, it's such a valuable time. Like, youth camp does a lot of the heavy lifting in, in a lot of young people's spiritual lives. Um, like, not just for the year, but for their whole life. And uh, so it's like, okay, if I've got gifts, if I've got love in my heart, if I have any kind of call for discipleship uh, in the lives of young people, like going to youth camp is so, so, so good. And, uh, and I just, I greatly enjoy, if you're in here and you're one of my like youth, youth crew kids, like the kids that I, I've gone with over the years, I'm just, I'm so excited we get to go back again. Uh, and if you're going for the first time, it's going to be great. Um, it's just a really, really great time. So be encouraged, guys. Like, you, you should be greatly encouraged. Like, what a way to start, uh, you know, our morning. It's just being reminded, like, God's kingdom uh, is coming, right? I, I, you know this, right? You do realize this, right? Like, God's kingdom will come, <laughs> right? Like, they, nothing, politics won't thwart it. Uh, governments won't thwart it. Like, uh, you know, sin won't thwart it. Like, God already put all those things to death, right? He's, he's just, right now, through the, the church, the Bible's basically like God is, is pouring his spirit into his church, that his church would be glorious, that his church would accomplish its mission. But here's the thing, God's church will accomplish its mission. God's will will be done. God's kingdom will come. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Like, and this is not, this should not stir you to say, well, I'll just sit back while God does his thing. This should stir you to say, I'm all in, because God's doing his thing. Like, how could we fail uh, if God is doing his thing, right? Uh, and, uh, and so, anyway, that's what I encourage you to do. When I go to youth camps, I go in the strength of the Spirit and the sovereignty of God, knowing his kingdom is coming. Uh, and, uh, man, I'm excited. If you can't tell, you can't spend a week at youth camp and not be full of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, so I hope today is good. Uh, the sermon, it's going to be a little bit um, different, maybe, than than some of my other sermons. I, I like to go to the Bible a lot, but we're going to read a lot of the Bible today. We're really going to uh, work through a lot of the key narrative in the book of Esther. Uh, and my sermon title today, uh, let's throw it up there here, God's goodness when hope feels lost, um, right? So uh, I, again, I, I, mentioned, I mentioned God's goodness here in youth camp in, 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 a, in a world where I think people would call America like post-Christian or sort of talk about the church being on de- in decline. Like I'll tell you this, when you see the kingdom of God at work, you will have no fear uh, of what happens out in the world. You just won't be afraid because when you see God's power, you realize God's power thwarts all things. Uh, and in our story today, we're going to be looking uh, at how God's power, God's goodness, God's glory, God's sovereign hand in the book of Esther uh, really, uh, really leads to great hope and great help when everything seems 
lost. Um, so if you haven't been coming, I just want to briefly summarize for you. Like some of these Old Testament books, sometimes we don't know them that well. Maybe Esther's a new book to you, uh, but it, 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 I want to I sort of recap the big idea, recap very briefly some of the characters uh, and kind of get you where we, we are in the story before we, be, we just dive in and we read it and we work through the passage together this morning. Uh, so the big idea of this series uh, is that God's hand is always active. Okay, if you just, that was your only takeaway from today, like, praise, praise God, God bless you. Like, right? God's hand, Christians, brothers and sisters, don't lose hope. God's hand is always active, always active in the circumstances of our world. And at the same time, God guards, he blesses, and he operates in the lives of his people, even when you don't realize it. Okay? It's the big idea of the book of Esther. God is sovereign, and he is moving in your lives. He knows who you are, and he is moving in your lives. Some of you have had this experience. You've had this experience where you've gone through something, and you turn around, and, and, and while you're going through it, you feel like you're in utter darkness. You feel like you're in utter despair, and you turn around, and you look, and you just see, oh my goodness, goodness, God, you were there the whole time. Right? Anyone who's a mature Christian, part of the process of becoming a mature Christian is you sort of go through circumstances, go through things you don't understand, you don't know why you're doing them, but you continue and you say, God, I know you're here. I can't see it. I can't understand it. I don't know why you're doing this to me. And then you get to the other side and you're like, okay, Lord, I get it. I, w- I was asleep and you woke me up. I was worshiping false things and you woke me up, but God, I see your hand this whole way. And you don't come through it like, oh, okay, I understand. You come through it like, Lord, you love me. When you've walked through something with God, you come out on the other side recognizing God's great love for you. And the book of Esther very much emphasizes this. So we've got got four major characters that I just want to remind you about uh, as we go forward. So first we have this character Mordecai. Who's Mordecai? Mordecai is a Jewish man. There's two major Jewish characters in this book, Mordecai and Esther, who the book is named after. Uh, Mordecai is a Jewish man who is Esther's uncle. And he adopted her when she was young. She became orphaned. Uh, we don't know the circumstances, but she, did, she was lo- lost her parents. Uh, and Mordecai adopts her, uh, takes her on, takes responsibility for her, humbles himself, lays his life down to, to raise Esther uh, and to care for her throughout her life, right? Uh, he's, he's just, he's like a father to her um, when she didn't have a father. Um, that's, that's, that's obedience to God. That's, that's him being sacrificial. It's him being loving. Mordecai exemplifies these things in this story. Then we have Esther. She is a Jewish woman. She's the niece of Mordecai. Uh, She's extremely beautiful, Uh, a very beautiful woman, Esther, Uh, and she wins the heart of the king of Persia um, and uh, and, uh, King Ahasuerus. So uh, we'll talk about King Ahasuerus. He's one of the four major characters of this book, Um, and she becomes his wife, and then she becomes the queen. Um, So again, just a reminder, when the book of Esther starts, basically what's happening is you have this ma- super powerful kingdom, the Persians, right? The Persians, very powerful kingdom. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie 300, in the movie 300, they, they have a, a king named Xerxes uh, in that movie. Well, that's who King Ahasuerus is. King Xerxes and King Ahasuerus are the same guy. So like, uh, basically, I don't recommend Christians watch the movie 300, by the way. Sorry. Uh, I saw it, you know, back in the, not, 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 the, not the best of, of movies, pretty, pretty intense. Uh, but, but anyway, this guy, uh, the, the Persians had come in, very powerful kingdom, and, and the Jews were really uh, weak uh, and, and tiny, and the Persians basically came in, conquered them, uh, and, and then, and, then uh, and they were, they were already being subjugated uh, by another powerful kingdom. So the Jewish people have no power. They have no political power. They have no social power. They don't really have any wealth either. They were robbed before the Persians came in uh, and, and took them over. So like they're in this really humble state. And, and right at the beginning, God begins to work this powerful miracle because Esther, right? And, and so back in this time, women would have had even less status, right? So it's like you have a, you have a people with low status and, and then a woman who would have had uh, not great social status. She's an orphan. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, in the very beginning of the book, God elevates her to this high position of honor and power. I believe this is what God does for us. This is what God wants to do in your life is, is take you from a place of, of being overlooked, underlooked, um, you know, underloved, not heard, not valued, and he wants to raise you up to a position where he, he sees you and he crowns you. The Bible says that, that we become uh, children of God, sons and daughters of God, like royalty when we come into the kingdom of God. 
right? Very much like how God lifts Esther up. So this is a powerful move of God. He uses normal human events to accomplish making Esther the queen. He's positioning her for a purpose. And it's also important to know, uh, they don't know that she's Jewish. So the king Ahasuerus does not know that she's Jewish. His royal court does not know that she is Jewish. Um, again, there's a lot of racism back in this day. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of judgment based on people's uh, ethnic backgrounds, um, which is, is a great evil uh, in this time, something we still have in our day and age. Um, so then you got King Ahasuerus, uh, a powerful character, um, and, uh, and yet at the same time, so he's the king of the Persians. He's like got all the power uh, on, uh, in, in the Persian kingdom, uh, but the book really shows us like this guy's got power, but God's got all the real power. That's kind of one of the themes of Esther. So Ahasuerus, he's somewhat volatile, volatile, like he, 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 he's really emotional. He kind of swings back and forth from despair to joy, from, from, uh, from great pride to great shame, like, uh, and, and he sort of acts kind of rashly through the book, and we're going to see some of that today, but he also trusts greatly in the people near him in his royal court, uh, and he's also very self-interested, so he cares a lot about himself. Uh, Haman is our fourth character, and Haman uh, is basically the right hand of the king. All right, so he gets, at the very beginning of the book, while Esther gets elevated, Haman also gets elevated, but Haman is unique. He's sort of the villain, right? Haman is the villain of the story, he's an Agagite, that was his, his ethnic background, his cultural background, uh, and the Agagites and the Jewish people historically had a rivalry. They hated each other is basically uh, what, what, what I'm saying. And, and what's interesting here is he, he essentially gets some power, he has money, and he uses his power, his being the right hand of God, or I'm sorry, being the right hand of the king, uh, and having a lot of money uh, and influence, he uses that power to basically persecute Mordecai and the Jewish people. So he hates the Jewish people. He really hates Mordecai. Uh, he has like a sm small run-in with Mordecai. Like he gets a slight offense from Mordecai and he decides, I've been slightly offended by this guy who's Jewish. So let's destroy all the Jewish people. That's basically what, this is, and this is very human. These are very human characteristics, by the way, right? Like when someone wrongs you a little bit, you want to wrong them back even more, right? Like you want to do great, you know, you probably don't want to commit full-on genocide, but uh, that's Haman. He's, he's sort of, you know, a very, evil character. So uh, he uses his power. He uses money. He bribes the king into uh, getting power so he can write an edict ordering the annihilation of all the Jewish people. All right. So at the end of our last chapter, uh, this, this edict has been written by Haman uh, that, that says all the Jews in Persia are going to be killed on a certain day. And it's like six months to a year out. Um, and so all the Jewish people are mourning that many of them are fasting, they're praying, they're pleading with God, they're turning to God. They're not trying to fight with swords, but they're looking to God. They're trusting in God, um, and, uh, and they're in mourning. Queen Esther is one of the last to find out. And when she first finds out, Mordecai's like, hey, you should use your position as queen to talk to the king. And she's like, uh, I don't, that's not going to go well, right? Like, like what, what's, what's, what's going to happen to me if I do this? And then, and then Mordecai's sort of like, hey, like, I, you know, what if it is that you were born for such a time as this? He's basically saying like, hey, it, it looks to me like God put you in this position for this very moment. That's what he's saying. And then Esther, she swallows her fear. She submits and she humbles herself and she says, okay, I'll go. And if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die, she says. All right, so you have these two characters. Uh, they're exemplifying humility. They're laying down their lives for the good of others. Esther, at great risk to herself, is going to go to the king. Um, at, this is the end of chapter 4. And at the very end, she asks Mordecai uh, and her close friends and her Jewish, her Jewish community, she says, hey, would you guys fast and pray for three days? Because uh, she's going to go to the king and she's going to talk, and she wants, she wants favor, so she wants God to go with her. Um, and so uh, our story today picks up in Esther chapter 5, and like I said, we're going to read a bunch of this. Uh, you're all caught up on the story. Uh, things are really bad. Things seem really hopeless for the Jewish people. The e edict is out there for them to be completely annihilated, um, and, uh, and Esther's in position to talk to the king, uh, but... Uh, but he, she actually says that she's recently fallen out of favor, basically. Like, he hasn't called her recently. So she's a little worried about her status with the king. So Esther 5, 1 through 5, here's what it says. It says, on the third day, so this is after the three days of fasting and prayer. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes 
And she stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Uh, Okay, so just again, we're going to stop as we read this and we're going to talk about what's happening. So again, when Mordecai comes to Queen Queen Esther and he says, hey, you should go talk to the, the king, she's like, he hasn't called me recently. She's like, I'm not, I've not currently been in his favor, all right? And he's like, you need to go talk to him. Well, here's the thing. If you show up to the king without an invitation, you can be killed, right? So like, he's got all the power. And again, this is a volatile guy. She's seen it. He threw out Queen Vashti, the the queen before Esther, like in a moment, he got a little shamed by her. and, And so he kicked her out and he found a new bride. Uh, in Queen Esther. So Esther knows he's volatile, uh, and she's willing to lay her life down to save the lives of other people. In the book of John, Jesus tells us, he says, no greater love than this, there's no greater love than this, than one lays his life down for their friends, right? Uh, And we see Esther modeling this. So she goes in, and she kind of, she kind of, she gets dressed up, and she goes, and she stands at the back of the king's court, right? So he can see her, but she doesn't just walk up. She's, she's sort of like, hey, here I am. This is a critical moment in the story, right? Uh, like, he has every right to, to, to have her put to death. He has every right to reject her as, as king with the Persian laws at this time. I'm not saying biblically this is like a good thing. This is just where she's at. She's walking into a, a tense situation. And it says, and when the king saw This is verse two. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, right? So he sees her, and suddenly, you see these subtle moves of God, right? She shows up on a day and the king just happens to see her, right? So it's like, it, like God is saying through normal human circumstances, he's operating, he's moving, right? So she's bold and she's faithful. And on this day, the king just happens to be receptive. So he invites her in and he extends his scepter, which is basically saying, come make a request to me. Uh, he's accepting her, he's welcoming, welcoming her forward. So she comes forward, she, she, she touches his scepter. And then he says to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, verse four, Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. I love this. This is very interesting right here. This is very, very interesting. So Esther comes forward uh, the king's like, what do you want? Everything up to half my kingdom. And now, he doesn't literally mean that, right? When you say, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. You don't literally mean I'm going to eat a whole horse. Like this is a little bit, he's basically saying, I'm going to be very generous to you, right? He's showing great favor. He's, he's saying to her, hey, come forward and uh, tell me what you want, queen. Like he's clearly just this day, he just sees her. He loves her and he wants to bless her. Uh, and you know, what's crazy, Esther, you know, there's a couple of things going on here. One, there's wisdom happening. She's like, well, I want to serve you. Come to this, I want to prepare a feast for you and your right-hand man, Haman, right? And, and she's got plans. She's going to be very bold and direct. I love Esther. I love Esther. She went from fearful to faithful, uh, right? She's pressing in through fear. She's like, if I die, I die, right? But she's willing to lay her life down to save others. And so, that's so noble. That's so Christ-like of her. And at the same time, Esther's really bold. <laughs> she's very direct, she wants Haman there when she does it. But Esther's also human, right? So it's like she could have made a request right here, but she's like, okay, I know this king. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to wine him and dine him. I'm going to have a feast for him. We're going to have some wine, and then I'll make my request. Uh, and so the king's happy about this. He's like, oh, I ask you what I can give you, and you're like, Let, let's go to dinner together on me, you know, basically. Uh, and, and so she makes a feast, and the king and Haman come to the feast that Esther has prepared. Well, then they get to the feast. I'm going to summarize this part. Uh, uh, they get to the feast, and the king asks her for her request, and she says, she, I love this, she hesitates. All right, you ever been in a situation where you know what you're supposed to do, and you're like, I can't do it yet. <laughs> I, I, not, okay, I can't. Okay, tomorrow. I'm going to do it tomorrow, right? So that's what she does. She doesn't, she's like, well, tomorrow come to a feast, and then I'll make my request, right? So it's, it's very interesting, guys, because, like, stuff is on the line. You're going to see here, like, like, her hesitating makes the situation a little bit more tense. And yet, at the same time, God knows we're human. 
So even though she hesitates, like God, God still knows. He shows mercy, he shows grace. Like her hesitation doesn't ruin the whole thing. Like just so you know, there's grace and mercy, right? Sometimes you and I, we hesitate. Right? There, I was at this youth camp last week and, and I try to be pretty bold when I'm talking to people about Jesus. And, and, um, and so I was like, I was talking to this guy and we got in a great conversation. I didn't bring up anything about Jesus. And then I was like, okay, it's time. And as I was, it felt like he was like doing like conversation jitsu where he's like trying to shut down the conversation. And I was like, okay, well, we'll, 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 we'll I won't do that. But I wasn't as bold as I wish I had been. I had hesitated. But here's the thing. God, he loves us uh, even when we hesitate. So she hesitates. You know, she's biding her time. Um, and then this is what happens. So they get, they, they have, they, so basically you got, this, this story's going to happen over two days, right? So uh, this, this is the end of day one, the evening. They're having dinner. And, uh, and then after dinner, it picks up in verse 9. It says in Haman, right, because Haman is invited, right, the villain of the story, the guy who wants to kill all the Jews. Now, remember, he doesn't know Queen Esther is Jewish. He doesn't know this yet. Uh, and, and so he wants to kill all the Jewish people, but he just got invited to this feast. It was just the king, the queen, and Haman. What's Haman think about this? Well, he likes himself a lot. So it says, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, right? Had some wine. He probably danced his way home that day, right? Like Haman's pumped. He's happy. He's like, I'm on top of the world, baby. Like the queen and the king, they want me there in their court. Like, like he, she got, Queen Esther's got the king. And guess who her second favorite dude in the world is? It's me, Haman, right? He's also kind of dumb because that's not true. Uh, but you know, we've all been there, right? You ever think you're in a better position than you are? And then you realize, oh, no. Uh, you know, and uh, anyway. Uh, so, uh, but here's the thing. So he goes home. He's joyful. He's glad in heart. He's on top of the world. He's got power. His edict is going to go out. It's just a matter of time. But then something happens. When Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, he just saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Okay, now this is important. When, Mordecai, or when Haman first got mad at Mordecai in the story, he was mad because Haman's like a big deal, and, and he's mad because Mordecai doesn't bow down, right? You, got, you know people like this, right? You know people like this. They're like, you got to treat them like they're a big deal or they don't like you. Well, that, that's Haman. And so first he's mad because Mordecai doesn't bow down. Well, now he walks by Mordecai, and Mordecai's knelt down, and, 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 and he's, he, he's mourning, and now, Mordecai's mad, or now Haman is mad at this dude because he doesn't stand up, right? It's like, oh, he didn't stand up. He didn't tremble before me, right? Now, here's the interesting thing about this story. Like, I, the, like in the story uh, of Esther, I think you find characteristics that, that exemplify humanity in all four of these major characters. You and I are like all of these characters in some way. Sometimes, guys, we are like Haman, right? We get mad when, when no one notices us, right? We get upset when people don't tremble. No, <laughs> hopefully not. Uh, that's a pretty big power trip. But like, you can get mad when you don't feel like you get the respect you deserve, right? And sometimes that might be merited, but sometimes we're like Haman and it's not merited at all. And other times we're like, you know, we're, we're like uh, Esther where we, we, we hesitate. I just think as you see the negative characteristics in these, in these uh, characters, they represent humanity. They represent things that are very real to who we are. So now Haman's mad because he walks by Mordecai, and Mordecai's down kneeling, not even, not even um, paying any attention to him. Nevertheless, verse 10, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and he brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. So Haman doesn't, like, he, it, when it says restrained himself, it was like he was going to go, like, accost Mordecai or something. Like, he thought about it. And it's funny because the book mentions that a couple of times, that, like, Haman is, like, contemplating going and just beating up Mordecai, like, uh, or killing Mordecai with his bare hands right there. But anyway, then Haman goes home and he gets his friends and his wife. Why does he gather them? Well, verse 11 tells us. So he gets his wife and his friends around, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches. I'm so rich. I just want you guys to know. Are you, you have any friends like this? Like, they might not say it that way, but they're like trying to flex on you a little bit about how much money they have. Uh, the number of his sons, he recounts to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced above him all the officials uh, and the servants of the king. Um, then Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow, guess what, guys? I'm invited back to be with her and the king. All right? So he's like bragging to his friends, all right? Telling them, right? Listen, you know friends like this? You've been this friend sometimes, right? You've been prideful. You've been full of yourself. 
You have had moments where you've thought, I'm God's gift to the earth. And let me tell some people about it, right? Uh, Maybe you got a degree in biochemistry back in 2008 and you bring it up a lot. (laughs) I don't like how you guys laugh so much about that. Okay. If you're unfamiliar, guys, I got a degree in biochemistry back in 2008. I was a scientist before I was a pastor. Yes. Um, I mean, I'd be lying to you if there wasn't some pride there sometimes, right? Like, I'm trying to, it's more just my story, but come on. Like, we live in a culture like worship science. And so it's like, it's like, yeah, of course, I'm a human. Like, there's times, you know. Uh, but I can tell you that's not my main intent, you know. That's not, that's not my main heart. And anybody who knows me knows that that's not, my main heart is not to be like Haman constantly bragging and telling you guys these things. My point to tell you is all of us sometimes are like this, right? All of us sometimes are a little bit, you know, arrogant or proud or boastful, um, you know, about, about where we're at. So he's, he's saying all this. And then verse 13, so he's like, I'm rich. I'm in favor. I got invited to the king and the queen to dinner. Like, you know, it's like he's, he's I don't even know. He's just, he's so, so happy. And then verse 13, yet all of this, he says, is worth nothing to me. That can't be true, Haman, come on. So long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Guys, hatred will blind you. Hatred will rob you. Hatred will kill you. Right? We see that here. We see that here. He's so consumed with hatred towards Mordecai. Even though he has a lot, of, in his own world, his own worldview, he's got a lot of blessings. And he's like, it's worth nothing to me as long as Mordecai is still alive. Here's the thing. The edict where all the Jewish people are going to be killed is out there. It's like established. It's only a matter of time before Mordecai and all the Jewish, like it's only a matter of time. Like Haman is impatient and arrogant and bi- like, wait a minute. This is also us, right? Like you're like, God, why not now? Right? Or this little thing. This is the worst thing in my life, Lord. I can't enjoy anything in my world because this one little thing is not going exactly how I want. I, we can be like this. We can be exactly like Haman. Which is to say, we can be pretty terrible sometimes. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. <laughs> okay, uh, Whew. This idea pleased Haman. Surprise? Anyone? Anyone surprised by that? I'm not. Uh, and he made. He had the gallows made. Okay, so he's he's sitting there throwing a hissy fit with his family and his wife. You know, I tell my wife this sometimes. I'm like, sometimes I complain a lot. I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, and she's like, well, just hang everybody that you hate. No, I'm just kidding. She never does <laughs> not say that. Uh, <laughs> uh, she's like, turn the other cheek, and I'm like, stop reading the Bible. No, uh, that's not true. I like it when she reads it. Uh, so <laughs> getting off track here. Uh, but anyway, so his wife, bad wife, this is a bad wife. This is being a bad wife. Yeah, just hang all your enemies. <laughs> uh, that'll be good. Uh, so she says, let a gallows. So a gallows is like where you would hang somebody. Uh, and uh, 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet tall, right? That's pretty tall. 75 feet tall. Right? This is like, not just kill Mordecai, this is shame Mordecai. Public execution on display at the hand of the king, at the order of the government. How public, shameful execution, visible by all. This pleased Haman, and he had it made. So he gets this gallows built outside of his house. Must have hired a really efficient night crew. Because <laughs> right? again, this is two days uh, but again, Haman is very wealthy, okay? Uh, and I'm sure they had stuff around to build gallows because they did put people to death pretty routinely back then. Uh, he's a well-connected guy. He's the right hand of the king. So he gets this gallows built, this giant gallows built next to his house. Um, and then Esther 6, the next chapter starts off. And this is, this is where, this right here might be the like, peak of seeing God, like God making himself obvious uh, right here. So on that night, Verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. So the night after the first feast, the night where the gals are being made, suddenly King Ahasuerus, he cannot sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So he's like, somebody come read to me. I can't sleep. Right? He's the king. He's got servants. He's like, I want to hear the book of memorable deeds. He just happens to pick the book of memorable deeds. And they just happen to open it up. And verse 2 says, and it was found written 
how Mordecai had told about Big Thana, what a name, uh, and Teresh. Uh, these two, two guys, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So in chapter two, right, Mordecai, because Mordecai, just to recap, Mordecai, because Mordecai is being such a good father to Esther, he isn't in the royal court, but he's near the royal court so he can communicate with Esther, who's now the queen, and while he's there communicating through various people, he overhears this plot from two of the servants of the king who say they're gonna harm the king, they're gonna try to put the king to death. And so he goes to Esther and he says, hey, Esther, I overheard these two guys. And then Esther goes to the king and she says, Mordecai, the Jew, has, has, has pointed out that, that two guys are here to kill you uh, the, the, in your own court. And so it gets recorded, but then nothing happens of it, it, it we find out. Well, 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 we'll read that here. It says, the king said, uh, sorry, so it was found that Mordecai had revealed this plot. And then verse three, and the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Uh, you can't, so here's what's crazy. Haman is having a gallows built for Mordecai as the king is asking the question, how can we lift up and bestow honor upon Mordecai, right? That's like, this is the book of Esther. Like it's saying in, in all of our circumstances, sometimes your circumstances don't make sense. It feels like death and life are happening at the same time. That's called confusion. Sometimes we're confused. What the book of Esther is saying is God's sovereign hand is, more, is moving through all things. The book of John also tells us that Jesus is the light of men and that his light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness has not overcome him. We're gonna see that. We're, you're seeing that here. You're seeing great darkness in Haman, great death, the ga- great death, literally 75 feet of it being built. And yet at the same time, God's sovereign hand moving in the most powerful figure in the, in the book, uh, King Ahasuerus, and, and, and he's saying the opposite. What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai? The king's young men who attended him said nothing has been done for him. They don't know there's a gallows being built for him right now. Something's being done, just not to honor him. And the king says, or the king said, who is in the court? This is great right here, guys. This is a book with some sweet poetic justice. You ever watch a movie? We just watched Shawshank Redemption recently. Like, I'd never seen it. I'm 36, sorry. Uh, sweet poetic justice in that movie, right? Book of Esther, chapter six, some sweet poetic justice right here. All right, so uh, the king says, uh, he says, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So obviously, Haman was part of the work crew. So he's up, right? Remember, this is the middle of the night. This is the middle of the night. Maybe it's early, like, you know, dawn, but it's like this is 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., something like that when this is happening. So the king can't sleep. He's hearing the story of Mordecai. He's like, how can we honor Mordecai? And he's talking with his inner court. And then he's like, hey, you know what? Maybe I have a royal official in the outer court who can come help help us decide what to do to honor Mordecai. Well, guess who showed up? Haman. And why did he show up? He showed up bright and early so he could be the first person invited into the king's throne room so that he could say, king, I'm your right hand. I've served you so well. There's a man who does great evil. We need to put him to death. His name's Mordecai. (laughs) I built a gallows. I'm ready to go, right? So Haman's there to condemn Mordecai, but the king is there to exalt Mordecai. This is also very similar to a story we're all very familiar with. I'll, I'll clarify it at the end. All right, so Haman is there standing in the court and it says, let him come in, the king says. So Haman came in and the king said to him, he's like, he's getting some advice. What's the king say? He says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> That's great. You ever think that, right? Like, some, like you ever been in a situation, somebody's like t- talking, you're like, oh, they're talking about me, and then they're not. <laughs> That's awkward when it happens. Um, never happened to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Haman's like, oh, he's talking about me. So guess what Haman's about to tell him? Everything he would want if he was gonna be honored by the king. So Haman, which is, it's such an interesting request. So Haman uh, said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and let the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, 
And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one Uh, to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead uh, lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor, and the king, uh, wait, hold on, wait, hold on, okay, don't don't read that yet, don't, don't, (laughs) stop reading the Bible, guys, no, I'm just kidding, Uh, just in this one moment here, keep please reading, Uh, at home especially, So Haman is like, this is what he wants. He's like, treat him like royalty. Treat him like he's the very king himself. Go uh, get one of your your highest royal officials. Like, you know, I'm your right hand, but you know, the next highest besides me is because Haman thinks it's about him. And it's like, and and give give the royal horse and the royal crown and the royal robe. uh, And and then king, I want you to, to clothe this man you desire to honor in royalty. I want you to exalt this person put him on a horse and ride him around town. And the royal official with them should be like, this is what it looks like to be blessed by the king. And walk around and parade him around town, honoring him. (laughs) So the king's like, cool, good idea. He says to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing. That's a great plan, Haman. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So now for Haman to disobey, right? Like like poetic, sweet justice. For Haman to disobey, he's going to get put to death, right? You can't disobey a direct order of the king. The king was specifically calling him and asking for his favor. uh, And so he says, go do this to, to Mordecai. So Haman took the robes and the horse. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? And he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Thus shall, you know, can you just imagine? Haman constantly trying to exalt himself, humble. Mordecai laying his life down for others, exalted. Word of God says this. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Says pride comes before the fall. Hey, this is one of those mysteries. Sometimes I think we think pride is the, the really out front bragging, the, the, the braggadociousness, but oftentimes pride manifests very sneakily. Like it's just me being Lord of my life. It's me being in the driver's seat of my life. And very much God is saying like, you know, when you try to lead your life like Haman is, you, it won't go well for you. And where Mordecai, what's Mordecai do? He, he mourns. He, he's pray, basically in this book when they're mourning, when they're fasting, they're praying to God. They're looking to God looking to God to help them, right? And the background of this book, it's worth noting. Like, you might be like, man, I thought the Jews were God's chosen people. Like, why is he treating them so poorly? Why are things so bad for him? Well, the lead up to the book of Esther, if you read all the Old Testament before this, what you'll see is this pattern. God's like, you're my people and I love you. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. I'll bless you so you can bless all the nations. You just have to do one thing. Love me above every other God. You've just got to obey me and come in and just enjoy my presence. Enjoy, like, worship with me. God's basically inviting them in to to give their lives to him. And through the Old Testament, they reject God. They worship other gods. They curse God. They go their own way. They make themselves Lord of their own lives. And time and time again, God redeems and rescues and restores, redeems and rescues and restores, redeems and rescues and restores. And yet, They reject, they reject, they reject. Some of you, this is your life story. God has reached out, God has cried out, God has called out, and you have rejected and rejected. And what happens is things will get worse and worse and worse. That's what the Old Testament is telling us. Things get worse and worse and worse for the Jewish people until they lose their nation, they lose their freedoms, they become subjugated. This is a period of the Bible called exile, the exile of the Jews. They have been sent, they're not even in their homeland anymore. They're living in the land of Persia because they've been exiled from their home. They don't have their temple. And yet, even at the worst moment, which was justice, this was God, he had told them, if you abandon me, it won't go well for you. And they abandoned him, and it didn't go well for them. And even at their lowest low, and their darkest moment, God's saying, I will reach my hand in, and I will redeem my people. You need to know, this is the kind of God that we worship. A lot of times people think, oh, in the Old Testament, God is this cruel God. No, he's a God of mercy and grace. The Jewish people got themselves into this pit. And God, is, it's not because Mordecai deserves it. It's not because Esther deserves it. It's not because the Jewish people deserve it. It's because God is good and merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, that he reaches in to redeem his people behind the scenes. This is a book to stir you and inspire you and to help you see that even when you don't see it, God's hand is there. Like, do you know this? This isn't just some old book. This is, this is who, who God is today. 
We're going to find out at the end that actually all the hidden moves of God that happened in the book of Esther, God has made visible for you and I in the person and work of Christ. Every position in this book you see in the work of Christ. You see a king with all the authority who can honor who he wants to honor and who can humble who he wants to humble. You see somebody who's in a pit in darkness, a sentence of death being exalted and lifted up to a place of life, coated and covered in royalty, called a son. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful story. So Haman does this. And even, check this out. Verse 12, last, last, last verse in, in, in chapter six. We just read all of chapter six. Look at that, guys. We just read a whole chapter of the Bible. Uh, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, so he went back to his mourning. He didn't say, ah, oh, look, everyone, look how much the king loves me. He put me on a horse, and I rode around, right? He goes back to mourning because he's like, the, the situation hasn't changed. The edict to, to kill all the Jews is still alive and active. But Haman hurried to his house. Now he's mourning with his head covered. So finally, through great humiliation, Haman himself now humbles himself, and he mourns and he covers his head, right? Sometimes in life, the difficult circumstances of your life are God shouting to you to try to wake you up. You think it's God tormenting you, but you don't realize God is shouting, wake up and turn to me. We think God has done this, but when we look back at our life, oftentimes it's like, oh no. There's that Taylor Swift song, I don't know if you guys have heard it. I love, it's got like a chorus, it's like, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. The Bible actually says that to us. Not just Taylor Swift, the great modern poet. Um, <laughs> we're the problem. We're the problem. Right? So often, the difficulty of our life is on us. The Bible wants you to realize that. Like, when I read the Bible for the first time, I was really arrogant. I was like, I started coming to church, and I was like, aha, yes, God will now bless me because I'm such a good young man. I have my whole life ahead of me, yet I choose to give him one of my hours a week. 25 to Halo, one to God. How holy and noble I am. Surely I will have a place in the kingdom of heaven right next to God, right? I'm like, I'm a good person. I'm pretty selfish. I wouldn't have said that. I'm very selfish at the time. I haven't killed anyone, though. <laughs> I just most of the time pretend as though God's not real, right? And live my life as though I am God. And I'm the highest, most exalted one. And when I opened the Bible and I started reading it, I, I, I was crazy. As God's grace and mercy was so sweet to me. I'd never read the Bible, and yet I thought I knew everything to know. I thought I was a Christian. Thought I was a good enough person. My friend Michael here invited me to church for a year before I came. That's how deaf I was. I remember thinking, yeah, I want to go, but never going. And then finally one day, again, faithfulness and perseverance, thank you again. So many people would have given up. He's like, hey, what if I pick you up for church? What if I take you to lunch afterwards? The ride probably would have been enough because I was just being lazy, I think. But the lunch was like, heck yeah, let's go. And so he comes and he gets me. I dress up way too nice because, again, I think, it's about, I think it's about my deeds, my acts, my appearance that pleases God. Uh, and although I had a broken, dark heart, I had to look good on the outside. I didn't know it. So I came, but, but as I came, God encountered me. I came here for the first time, and, and I, just, I was like, there's something here I've never experienced any other place in my life. And I felt suddenly stirred to read the New Testament, and I started to read it. And as I read it, what became immediately apparent as I, 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 when you read the New Testament, you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospels. And they're all four retellings of the, of the life of Jesus from various perspectives of people who were close to him uh, or disciples of the people who were closest to him. And, and so I read it, and, and I, I just, I remember I wept in my room. I wept, wept. I wept in my room because I was like, I thought I knew all this about God, and yet I didn't even know the first four books of the New Testament started with stories of Jesus' life. And yet you can't help but be moved when you see his grace, his compassion, his love, his power. And as I read this, I was like, I read and I was gazing upon Jesus and I was like, there's something wrong with me. And I got through the book of Acts and I got through the Romans and I couldn't stop, I couldn't stop reading. And actually at the time I had started dating a girl at the church and I literally thought, I'm doing all the right things. I'm going to church. God's now rewarding me for my good deeds and my good, and, and I'm such, I'm so good. And he's giving me this. And well, then that girl broke up with me. Right? And, and I was like, God, why? <laughs> you know, it was like, the, it was like a two-month relationship, and I'm like, ah, devastated. And at the moment, that's where I was in life. And I just remember being like, okay, God, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to look in your word, and I'm going to trust in you, right? Because God, oftentimes, like, dating was definitely an idol of mine. Baseball was an idol of mine. I just injured my rotator cuff. I was playing college baseball, so it was like my baseball career was over. I just felt like, God, why is all this bad stuff happening? And I just kept reading in the Bible, and I came to realize, like, I'm the problem. Something's wrong with me. And if I'll just humble myself and turn to him, God, and I was like, I, and, I, and I said back in October 2006, I was like, okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this out. I'm going to give you my life, and we're going to see how it goes. And here we are, 17 years later, <laughs> I'm still in. And God has showed me his glory like I've never, and like, I just want you to know the same invitation is for all of you. Whether you are, if you're here and you're not a Christian, Jesus is inviting you in to know him, right? Just like Mordecai, if you, if you realize like, oh gosh, like I, God, only you can rescue me. The Bible says that it's the heart that desires to be helped and saved that turns to God, turns to Jesus as their savior, to believe I'm broken, I'm sinful, I need forgiveness, I've messed this up. I don't just need forgiveness, I need redemption from my mistakes. And, and the Bible tells us, Jesus says in Matthew 11, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And Jesus invites us in, he says, if you come, to, and all this is, is just saying, something's wrong with me, Lord. I need to repent, I need to change, I need to stop being God of my own life. I need to repent of my sins, which means I'm gonna stop living for myself. I'm gonna stop being selfish and I'm gonna turn and I'm gonna live a, a life that is first dedicated to you, Lord, and then second, about laying my life down for the good of others. And God will show you his kingdom. He, your sins will be wiped away. Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by a single offering, he has perfected those who are being sanctified. What that means is that those who turn to Jesus have been perfected past tense. What? Once for all time. I mean, this is it. Now you see right here the crux of this. Mordecai, humble man, remains humble. Haman, a shamed man now, who was proud. Right? God wants to take us and, and take our humility and, and bless us. He doesn't want to shame us. The story continues on here. Esther 7, we're going to read this, and then we'll, we'll be wrapping up soon. It says, so the king and Haman... This is, the, this is the evening of day two. Uh, they went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. All right, so he's like, what do you want? And she's like, let me tell you. And she's very bold. And she reveals here who she is. This is the first time in the whole book she reveals that she's a Jewish woman. She says, let my life be spared and let my people, uh, and my people for my request. For we have been sold uh, to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. She says, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. Saying, I wouldn't, if, we, if it was just slavery, I wouldn't have said anything. <laughs> the Old Testament's full of that. Jewish people being subjugated to slavery. She probably recognized that. I mean, this shows that she recognizes the Jewish people being out of favor with God because they, they pursued their own life. And what happens, here's what, here's what the Bible says, that when we pursue our own life, we end up enslaved. You end up enslaved, right? To what? To, 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 to your job. You end up enslaved to your sin. It controls you. Your joy is dictated by how much you're getting what you think you want in life. Jesus gives joy that can't be shaken. Everything else enslaves you to it. Promises joy but delivers death. But Jesus promises death and delivers eternal joy. All right, so she's saying here, if we had just been sold to slaves, I wouldn't have said anything. But but he's saying, but then she, she appeals to the king's self-interest. She said, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So she's saying, if you kill all the Jewish people, it's going to be a big loss for you. You're going to lose something valuable if you kill us all. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? So earlier in the book, basically, we re, we re, this reveals that, that, that Haman was a little sneaky, right? He's not very bold. He was a little sneaky in how he came to the king. And when he came to the king, says the king gave him a signet ring, and, 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 and Haman basically acted on behalf of the king to write this edict. You know? And it seems like the king isn't quite sure the full extent of this edict until the queen brings it to his attention. Right? So he says, who is it? Who's done this? And then Esther, bold Esther, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman, 
sitting right here. Can you imagine Haman sitting there like eating his potatoes like, this has uh, gone really wrong. <laughs> like, he was like, this was supposed to be the highlight of my day. I'm depressed because of the horse thing. I was like, at least I get to go to dinner with the queen and the king and the queen. Like, at least I'm her second favorite person. And he's like, I don't think I'm her second favorite person. I think I misread this whole situation. I'm, this is not good, right? Like, that's Haman sitting there. Uh, and, and then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen, right? Just terrified. And the king arose. This is like the most sober-minded moment of the king in the whole book. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, right? So it's like, is this, did he rise from his wrath from the wine? Yeah, so he's, he's been drinking a lot, so he's extra angry, is what it's telling us. And he went to the palace garden. So he goes to like chill out. He gets up, he's like full of rage because he's, he's realizing a couple of things. One, that like a bunch of the people in his kingdom are going to be killed. And, and it seems like he wasn't quite clear on that, that, that that was what this edict was about, you know, which seems kind of interesting. Uh, or he just wasn't paying attention or he doesn't, or he's realizing here that Esther is a Jew. And so she's a part of this edict. And so somehow his own wife, he's going to lose this wife who he clearly loves and cherishes. And so he's full of rage and it all happened. It's his right hand guy. So he's like, my right-hand guy is trying to plot to get my own wife killed. And at the same time, this day, Mordecai the Jew is lifted, like, he's clearly seeing, like, oh, this people, these people are, like, Mordecai, save me. This is my wife, Esther. And Haman's trying to kill them? So he's full of rage. But he goes and he gets a moment in the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. It's interesting. Haman turns to humans. Queen Esther and Mordecai turn to God. And here Haman's trying to turn to the queen. He's trying to turn to the human authorities to find salvation. Human authorities will not lead you to salvation. Presidents and politics, they will not lead you to salvation. Jesus will. He stayed and he begged for his life from Queen Esther. So he's knelt down and he's begging near Queen Esther. He saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king comes in from the garden to the place where they were drinking wine, and as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. So imagine this. She's like on a couch, and he's knelt down next to her, begging and weeping, wailing probably. The king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So the king sees it, and first of all, the king knows Haman, right? This dude's so proud. Like, even his begging looks like assault. Like, he doesn't know how to do it. Uh, and, and so he thinks he's assaulting the queen. And so, so the king, enraged, got some wine in him, you know, mad about the situation, furious with Haman. Now he's like, there's another charge. And so it literally says they put a bag over his head. He has been sentenced to death the moment that happens. Then Harbana, then Harbana one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, says, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, it's standing at Haman's house, 75 feet high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. I mean, wow. Some poetic justice. See the volatility of King Ahasuerus here, right? Here's what I want to tell you. Like, you and I, According to the Bible, we have the guilt of Haman. We have the guilt of Haman. We deserve death. And yet at the same time, you and I are also like Mordecai. Death was planned for us, but another went in our place that abated the wrath of the king. It's a beautiful story here. I love how, like, this is what, guys, this was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before, like, Jesus came into the world. Can we just pause for a moment and just, like, I mean, God is so good. How could we not, like, I, the story just told the gospel to us hundreds of years before it happened, right? Death planned for one and a substitute is given. Real justice is doled out, and the king, his wrath is satisfied. Right? You and I, we carry the real guilt of Haman, but we are given the innocence of Mordecai. You and I, we carry the real guilt of our sins, and yet we are given the innocence of Jesus. That's the whole idea of the gospel. Right? You and I, we are guilty. Something's wrong with us. We sin, 
And we sin, we, we are also sinned against, right? Oftentimes we take the sin against us and we, we inflate it to try to minimize our own sin, right? This is called victimizing yourself. Our culture's huge on this. Every, so much of the therapy in our modern world today is, is, is inflating your victimhood in order to, 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 to take out your own responsibility. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says you have just wrath on you. You are sinful and broken and you deserve it. And if you're really honest, you know it. But the Bible doesn't end there. The, gospel, the word gospel means good news. There is really good news for us. And this is the good news, that you and I, though guilty, you and I, though guilty, an innocent, perfect, eternal God. Ooh, I mean, think about that. God could have done anything, and yet he chose to sacrifice himself willingly. This is the God we worship. This is what our faith is about, is a recognition of I had guilt, he was innocent, he took my place to abate the wrath that I deserved. And now I'm alive. Right? And just like Mordecai is paraded around and, and called royalty, you and I, if you say yes to Jesus, you are put on a horse and you are called royalty, right? Like you are a son, you're a daughter of God. Your inheritance with Je- you have inheritance with Jesus, First Peter says, an inheritance that is unfading, undefiled, imperishable, kept in heaven for you. I mean, this is amazing. Here's our, our big summary here. God is always working behind the scenes. We may not understand what he's doing or why he's doing it, but when we trust in him and we turn to him and live for him, he's able to powerfully save us from our own sins. And in the book of Esther, what is hidden, what's hard to see, is plainly revealed in Christ. You want a good takeaway from Esther? There it is. I got a passage for you. I'm not going to, I'm not, well, you know what, I'll read it. The band can come. I'm going to read this and I'm going to pray for us here. That's what I'll do. I'll read this and I'll pray. I just encourage you this morning at the end here, because we're gonna worship, we're gonna, have, we're gonna have four songs, we're just singing and worship, and I just encourage you, like, I mean, I don't know about you, I hope I'm not the only one, but I'm just in awe. I'm just in awe as I read this, this Old Testament story that can seem so irrelevant, and yet the glory of God is, is in it and on display when you see it. When you really look, it's there. God's salvation, God's hand in your life. Like today, here's where, you should, where you're at right now. It's not an accident. That, by the way, it's not an accident that you're here. God's hand has moved you here. It's not an accident you're hearing this good news today. It's not an accident that Jesus is being glorified and lifted up. It's not an accident today that you're feeling that deep inner stirring when you recognize who God is and what he's done for you. My encouragement to you would be this, is to humble yourself. Like Mordecai and Esther. And yet to be bold. And to say, Lord... I'm a sinner and I need salvation. The Bible says, in Christ, we are now dead to sin. You, you are no, when you're in Christ, you're no longer a sinner. It's not your identity. You're now a saint. Right? It doesn't mean that you don't have sin in your life. It just means sin is not your identity anymore. You're a saint, redeemed, clothed, crowned, exalted. Not because you deser- deserved it, but because Jesus died for you. He gave his glory He gave his life, his innocence, so that we could find life and life eternal. This is what Colossians 1, uh, 15 through 23 says. I love this passage. He, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whatever it is, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That is to redeem and draw back to God all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through his death, he gives us peace. This is the gospel. You need peace in your life. Jesus has it for you. It says, in you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Once you hated God, once you were hostile, once you were selfish, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. His physical body died in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach lifted up, crowned in royalty. Whew. 
if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. I mean, I don't know about you guys, just the word of God. I mean, isn't it amazing? The parallels from this passage written hundreds of years later. And I mean, I'm just like, my mind is blown by the glory of God's word. And I hope you're, I hope, I hope, I mean, you don't have to feel anything. I just hope in your soul the spirit is working. Heavenly Father, I just ask this morning that you would, God, just bless us. God, we're your people. Lord, we want to come to you and just celebrate your goodness. Lord, you're not cranky and angry. You're loving and merciful. You came to die, not to condemn us, but to bring us life. And Lord, it's so simple. If we do have brokenness in our lives, we can just lay it at your feet. Lord, it's, it's, it's when, we, when we, again, you say, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Lord, when we just say, I'm broken, you exalt us. Lord, when we just say, I'm sinful, you redeem us. Lord, when we say, heal me, Lord, you reconcile us to you. And when you do it, it's once for all time. If you're in here and you're a believer in Christ, this is a reminder of your status. You don't have to come back and, and, and redo the whole thing. You just have to remember who you are. You are no longer a sinner. You are a saint, and you have been since the day you gave your life to Jesus. And if you're here in this room and you've never given your life to Jesus, today he's giving you an invitation to say yes to him. I'd love to talk to you about that if you, want, if you just want more, you want to talk more about what that means. Lord, I, I just, I pray, bless us, pour out your Holy Spirit, come that Jesus would be glorified, that we would be drawn in, Lord, that we would know, God, your kingdom is coming, your glory will be revealed, your will will be done, and God, you've called us to be filled and redeemed and reconciled and, and lifted high as sons and daughters of God, to, and also called to go out and bless and tell everybody this good news that so few people know. Jesus, I pray, be glorified today. In your name we pray, amen.